Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Cody Moser. Cody is a PhD student at the University of California, Merced, and works with Paul Smaldino, studying innovation and collective intelligence. Welcome, Cody. Thanks, Jim. Really excited to be on here. Yes, this will be fun. While I was doing my prep work, I uh, had forgotten and I discovered that Cody and I actually were co-authors in a three-part roundtable on Twitter. I think it was uh, immodestly titled something like Saving Twitter. So (laughs) if you want to see us, you know, it's kind of like four-year-olds in parallel play, the way it was set up. We didn't really interact with each other, but the editors kind of orchestrated it, sort of mildly humorous. As always, it, along as well as the base paper we're going to be talking about will be available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com so go check it out and that brings us to the next point the launch pad at least for this discussion no telling where it may actually go is a paper cody recently wrote called innovation facilitating networks create inequality now as we'll get into, the paper's about a shitload more than that, but that's the title. <laughs> and it was published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences. And again, check out the link at the episode page. It's a very readable article. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to read it. But if you're a total idiot, don't waste your time. Just listen to the podcast. So let's start with why did you do this work? So it starts with a paper that Paul and I did a few months ago titled Maintaining Transient Diversity is a General Principle for Collective Problem Solving. And in that paper, we looked across a large number of models where we found that any properties which seem to increase the diversity of a population in a collective problem solving task, say from a NK landscape to one of these multi-armed bandit tasks, seems to increase the population's ability to solve that task. But We kind of get dangerously close in that paper to presenting something akin to a free lunch where we say, oh, you Ah. know, (laughs) you should just do this all the time. I was about to interject. I said, warning, no free lunch theorem. No, that's precisely right. And we were like, you know, it looks like we're not even positing any trade-offs here. And so the idea behind this paper was to say, okay, it looks like group performance perhaps gets scaffolded in some of these environments, but what's actually happening on the agent level? So instead of just looking at how well the group performs at the task, we looked at the distribution of agent performance in the task and kind of more or less led to the title that we have. Yeah, interesting. And essentially, it is a agent-based modeling approach, and you focused on a specific task, which I'd never heard of. Why don't you describe the task to the degree that it's useful for the audience? Yeah, totally. So the original task was made by Maxime Derricks and Robert Boyd in 2016, and it was actually an in-person experiment. So the way that it works is that you get groups of people together, and they have a set of six potions, and they can combine these potions in many different ways, and they end up getting more potions if they make the correct kind of combination. Now, unbeknownst to them, there's kind of an initial pathway, there's a path dependency built into these combinations where if you kind of mix the first six together in a certain way, you'll discover this purple potion, or if you mix them together a different way, you'll discover this orange potion. 
But the thing is, is that you can use subsequent potions in those next few combinations. And the idea is that most people in the real life task did not go back to that original set of potions. And so in the experiment they did was they either had people in a fully connected group where they could all kind of mix these potions with each other and see what each other were doing, or in a partially connected group where they separated them and then they could kind of spy on the other group every once in a while. And what they found is that this group that was fully connected never found basically that you could discover this, you know, super potion if you figured out the solutions to both of these pathways and combine them. But the partially connected groups more than half the time did. I just want to get a little bit more clear out exactly how this works. So who gets presented the six initial potions and do all groups get the same six? Is it individuals or is it groups that get presented with the potions? Yeah, great question. So it's individuals. So every individual on the network gets, and do they all get the same six starting potions or is it some kind of random mix from a larger set? They all get the exact same set of potions. And so really what's dependent is who you're learning from in terms of the combinations they made. So it's basically taking social learning of other people's successes and trying to integrate that into your own behavior. Okay. I'm going to be a little pedantic here because I want to make it clear how this thing works. Again, because of no free lunch theorem, right? Because I was going to argue later that Okay, it works for this. What makes you think it has any generality, right? But those of you who listen to the show, you know, I reference the no free lunch theorem fairly often. For those of you who haven't heard it recently, it's basically a statement which basically says there is, in principle, no universal way to solve all problems. Every set of problems will have a problem-specific way to solve it. And so anyone that ever tells you this is the magic answer to all problems, just say, no free lunch theorem. It's the equivalent of the ban on perpetual motion machines, as far as I'm concerned. It's a very good filter for nonsense. <laughs> no, precisely. I think that was uh, David Wolpert. Yeah, Dave Wolpert. Anyway, no free lunch theorem. So everybody gets six. Now, next question. There is an implicit law of physics, or at least law of chemistry, behind these things. Is this law of chemistry the same in every trial? Yes, that's right. In other words, that if I mix A, D, and E, then I get something useful. Is that always true in all trials? So there's no exploration of trying to understand the laws of chemistry, for instance. No, precisely. So that's held constant across all the simulations. And so pretty much what we're doing is we're altering the network structure and kind of the individual agent behaviors, such as their propensity to share solutions with one another to see in our metric, what we're looking at is how quickly they can solve this task, basically. And they solve it by finding the super potion. Yeah. A couple of, you know, again, more low level questions here before we get to the bigger thing. So just so we all understand, everybody gets the six initial potions. The laws of chemistry are fixed. So you make the right combination in every trial, you'll get the same result, which is good. Now, so I get one. I'm an agent. How many trials do I have? I mean, what are my rules of engaging with these six potions? And then what affordances do I have on the network? I mean, can I ask my neighbors? Well, I mean, can we trade? I mean, you know, what is the affordance architect? What do I do as a, an agent? And what is my affordances on the network? So what they're doing here is, the potions are formed in triads, so you have to take three potions to see if you can get a different potion. And what you're doing is you're picking one of the people that you're connected to in the network, one of your partners at random, and you're selecting two potions or one potion, and they're selecting one potion or two potions so that you both combine three. And then that combination, kind of matching your knowledge and their knowledge, is how you test to see if you get a new potion. Okay, so... I'm an agent. I get selected by the running algorithm, and I'm told to either pick one or two. 
and then submit it at random to some connection within my group. And then the God in the machine decides whether that's a good potion or not. And if it's not a good potion, it tells me tilt. If it is a good potion, it says good potion. Are there only two good potions or are there more than two? You referenced two. Yeah, I think there's nine. So the two that I was talking about at the beginning set the initial trajectory. So you can discover either, we call them the A trajectory or the B trajectory potion, which means if you get the one on the A trajectory, you're biased to use that again and again, rather than going back to the original set. Okay, so now, Mr. Agent, I have my six little bottles here. I do a reaction and, ah, we discover a new potion. Does that get added to my set or do I have to knock one out of my set? Does my set now go to seven? So the set is additive. So you take the new potion, but you're more likely to use it because it has kind of a higher utility to you than the previous ones do. You think, maybe, right? One could easily imagine a problem where that was not true, right? In evolutionary computation, which is kind of my home academic field, there are famously all kinds of interesting trick problems that try to fuck with evolutionary algorithms. And so you could easily have dead ends where a potion was actually useless, for instance, right? Mm. And that would be an interesting thing to experiment with. Okay, so now a couple more nerdy questions before we can get to the meat of the matter. When I'm connected to somebody to see if we can find jointly a reaction that works, what is the nature of the boundary? Is this something that is stipulated in the experimental design, essentially a series of membranes and everybody's stuck in one? I mean, talk to me about how, how you generate membranes, how you vary them in size, and how an agent happens to become embedded in a membrane. Yeah, so basically what we're doing is we're generating random network structures. So some of these are, you know, you define say 100 agents, and you define some level of connectivity. So if it's 0.5 or half, then half the agents which could be connected to each other are connected to each other. So usually those boundaries are static. You're kind of stuck with your partners across the simulations. In some cases, we do change it up where individuals after a certain number of time steps can switch partners, in which case one of the edges in the network is changed from someone you have now to someone you weren't connected to. And we also used a few real-world networks. Caveman networks, I remember, is one of them. These are networks that are not actually membranes, which are somewhat different, actually, in their design. So there's basically, you know, because there's all these algorithms for generating networks. We've all played with them, additive networks, you know, algorithms to generate small world networks, fully connected networks, etc. So we're really talking about network connectivity from an agent-centric perspective. So when it's my turn to do a experiment, the god in the machine basically finds one of my connections and says, all right, we're going to randomly connect you. Okay, that's actually simpler than dealing with membronics, but I would say probably a little bit less interesting. I think you'd find slightly different results if you define membranes of different scales and sizes and stuck people in them. Because mm. that way, you you know, regular listeners know, one of the things I'm fascinated with is origins of life, and I often use it as a metaphor. And it is certainly thought, but it is not known, and, but it is one of the leading theories, and it could be wrong, the so-called membrane-first theory on the origin of life. That Because you know, when you think about origin of life, it's a combinatorics problem where you have to find an autocatalytic set, but you also have to defeat dilution at the same time. So you imagine Darwin's warm little pond that's you know building this cool set of chemicals, then it fucking rains and everything gets diluted. Right? <laughs> and so, oh shit, right? Perhaps membranes were the magic trick. And there's some reason to believe that certain classes of fatty acids have this very interesting effect that they interact with water in such a way that one half of them 
point outward and the other half point inward, and they adhere together to each other as well. And so they will form a membrane, so then you have concentration inside. So anyway, thought for a future experiment, use membronics rather than network generation. But now I think we understand sort of the structure of the analysis. What happened next when you actually started doing this stuff? We found a few things, some known. For example, one of the things which scaffolded performance in this task was if the network was less connected, they seemed to do better at it. And in a sense, the reason for that is that different parts of the network are able to think about different parts of the problem set. If you think about it, if everyone is fully connected to each other, they're all sharing the same information. They kind of have this inbuilt bias where they don't tend to do too much in terms of uh, explore-exploit dynamics. They're just totally exploiting whatever information they have, but they're not able to look around too much. Another thing we found is that larger populations outperformed smaller ones, except for when you actually look at the amount of work done by the agents themselves. So in this case, what we're looking at is the time until completion in the task. But if you look at the overall number of combinations, such that, say, in one time step, 100 agents will make 100 combinations and 10 agents will only make 10, if you simply just scale that number to the number of time steps that the uh, group has, so say 10 agents have to make 10 steps to do 100 combinations, it takes about the same amount of work in all these different populations to complete the task. So basically, there's nothing magic about scale other than the fact that you'd get more trials. That's correct. Yeah. And this was somewhat surprising to me, if only because even when you're looking at things like uh, connectivity, so let's say a network of 100 agents with a 0.5 connectivity, right? That means that you're connected to half of the individuals you could potentially be connected to. In 10 individuals, that number of 0.5 is going to be much smaller in terms of the overall individuals. The average degree of the larger networks is still going to be higher than in the smaller networks. But nevertheless, there's some compensatory effect in the networks where they're just performing the same regardless. That's quite interesting. And whether that's fundamental or just a happenstance of the particular experiment, we probably don't actually know. Though... I suppose you could vary the laws of physics and see if that changed that result. For instance, you know, that they added some additional reactions or added some dead end traps or something. Is there any other form of information sharing other than an attempted experiment with a randomly connected neighbors or any equivalent of publishing, right? Is there a Royal Society journal in the agent world? No, no. So the information's not necessarily ledgered, but if I do find something, I have the ability to kind of give it to all of my neighbors. And so that means that in a highly connected network, say 0.75, and I find something, about 75% of the network then gets that information as a consequence of the thing that I discovered. Ah, okay. That's interesting. So that's an institutional structure, right? We don't have IP regulations in this computer world, unlike the real world. No trade secrets, no people trying to hoard information for their personal benefit, which is a major institutional design, rather unlike the real world. One thing we do do is we lower the likelihood that one shares, though. And so going back to this IP thing, as you decrease your propensity to share and so make it less likely that you give this potion to any of your neighbors, you also seem to increase performance there. That is very interesting. 
Yeah, I think in effect what you're doing is you're lowering the connectivity after the fact. So you might have 100 neighbors, right? That's 100 individuals where you could draw information from when you're making that initial trade, but not necessarily on the other end of things, 100 people you're going to share that information with when you find a successful one. Now that is quite interesting and seems somewhat counterintuitive. You know, it would seem, you know, and again, things like open source ideas, open source science publishing, et cetera, says more is better. Everybody should have access to everything. Did you get any insights on what mechanisms could be driving more rapid success on the potion task when the sharing of intermediate results was lessened? Yeah. So if you look, and this goes back to one of the measures that we use, we use a, a Gini coefficient to measure payoffs in the task. So each potion has some kind of score that's related to how high it is in the kind of item space. So one that has like a lot of points, took a lot of different potions to discover it. And what we find is that when you decrease the likelihood of information sharing, the Gini coefficient goes really high, meaning that there's a really high inequality in the network in these scores. And so essentially what you're doing is you're increasing the diversity of solutions that individuals have. And maybe the set of potions they have on their table becomes more diverse. And of course, this is actually a problem in evolutionary computing is the big flat lands where everything is the same and nothing much ever happens. And again, this is an origin of life problem also, right? The big pond is too diverse, too mixed up. And the low probability reactions are more likely to happen in the smaller membranes, particularly if you have a whole bunch of them. So this is the parallel search, but not fully connected. No, precisely. Yeah. I think about this specifically, like in terms of this idea of transient diversity, that it seems to really go back, for example, to like Fisher's fundamental theorem, that the strength of selection is proportional to the amount of variance in the population. This just seems like another kind of reformulation of that exact same thing. Yep, we find in evolutionary computing all the time that you have to artificially insert diversity back in because a lot of naive approaches ended up eliminating diversity because for even tiny differentials in fitness will quickly force out over a few generations slightly less fit, instantaneously less fit, and yet there may be pathways in those slightly less fit entities that would actually far exceed the guy who's ahead a little bit right now. You know, this is the famous problem of being stuck on local max as opposed to having the tools that you might eventually find by recombination to get something at a higher level, local maxima, maybe even find the global maxima. So uh, that may be part of the mechanism that's going on too. Now let's uh, turn a little bit to this idea of inequality. When I first saw the headline, I thought you'd be trying to argue about the equivalent of socioeconomic inequality. And you sort of come back and sort of wave hands a little bit on how this might be similar. But what you're really talking about is inequality of probability of discovering the final potion or any, you get points for each potion you discover. What is your metric of inequality first? And then let's talk a little bit about what you found. So the metric for inequality is based off of all the potion scores that you have. So basically you sum those and you could say, you know, someone's more wealthy because they have a bunch of really good potions and then someone's less wealthy because they only have a few, you know, poor potions, right? And we just computed the Gini coefficient on that, which is kind of, you know, standard econometrics, you know, measurement that's used to assess the inequality in the population. I'm just curious, what was the Gini coefficient? Give me some examples. You know, what's the, the U.S. Gini coefficient is what? Let's look it up here on the Google. 4.47. 
Is there any memory of what kind of ranges you were in in your little play world here? Yeah, so in our case, we usually scaled it between zero and one. So at zero, everyone's kind of, you know, flat. Everyone has the exact same things. But of course, at one, when it's much higher, it looks pretty bad. And usually we would get somewhere, you know, around like 0.6 or 0.7. And that was in cases when the network was really not connected. Essentially, you know, you have these really high performing nodes that uh, are essentially holding on to most of that. I don't want to say wealth, but most of the good solutions in the population. And that was the point I wanted to make, which is you actually weren't talking about wealth at all, right? You were talking about points for having found magic spells, about, you know, founding the answer to problems. Now, it is true that in our society, those things are somewhat strongly correlated, but they don't need to be, right? One could imagine different forms of how reward is spread, that the discoverer only gets a tiny little taste, perhaps. In your world, you're assuming the discoverer or a holder of an object gets the full reward factor. Call it a highly individualistic, you know, late-stage capitalist perspective on things. And I think it's just worth pointing out to everybody that that happens to be uh, the world we live in at the moment, but that definition of society was not brought down down from Mount Sinai by Moses. It just happens to be where we are today, and it's well within our power to change it if we were so inclined. So it's a very interesting result, but one that we should be careful not to overly focus on with respect to its outcomes. You know, it's, what was the other word? You had outcomes, which is inequality of what you have in your stack, but then you had some other word for the socioeconomic equivalent. The two don't have to be strongly linked, though in our current world, they are moderately strongly linked. Though, of course, the most important thing in our current world is luck, right? In fact, in many, many, many ways, where did you happen to be born, right? You get born in a neighborhood with good schools. Did you get born to rich parents? Did you get born to uh, parents who were not crazy? You know, when you're in your business world, did your first boss, you know, hate people that wore green ties and fired you because he hated green ties? All kinds of weird shit happens in life. I often tell people that, you know, my own experience, at least 60% of success was luck. Though, of course, you can't take advantage of luck unless you also use skill. So the two are intimately connected. But anyway, that's an aside. When you made a network less connected, you found more inequality in each person's value, their portfolio, essentially. Did it impact the total steps necessary to find the solution one way or the other. It did, yeah. So essentially that when you had less equal networks, you had higher performance in the task. And in fact, a group's performance in the task seemed to be proportional to the inequality or vice versa. This is an effect because if you think about what's kind of scaffolding performance, if you lower connectivity, what's happening is you're introducing a heterogeneity of edges, right? So you're, you have a lot of people who are maybe connected to a bunch of others. Some people aren't connected to very many others. And so that heterogeneity is also just going to be a heterogeneity of the information that's transmitted through the network. Now, that's a dig at one more detail question. So when you have a less connected network, were all the agents of the same degree or were there variants of degree amongst the agents? So there are variants in degree among the agents. And so we look to see where the highest performing agents were, right? I mean, we use things like the degree centrality, which is, you know, who has the highest degree. And what we found is that the agents who tended to find the final potion, which is, you know, worth a whole lot, tended to be the most central in terms of both degree centrality and betweenness centrality. And also their own personal degree, presumably, right? 
That's right. So you have, what is my degree? How many connections do I have? And then various measures of centrality. So, you know, the number of networks I have is, are my parents rich, right, as an analog? Yeah, centrality. Did my father go to the Harvard Business School, right? The other measures of centrality, I don't have immediate metaphors to come to mind, but I, I suppose there are some, right? Now, did you try an experiment where you searched through different levels of connectivity, but you kept each agent at the same degree? Did you try that? experiment. No, no, I didn't do that. I'd be damn interested in seeing what that did, where everybody had the same degree, but we varied the degree. Mm -hmm. That way you'd see, is the connectedness by itself significant, or is it the heterogeny of degree that is significant? Yeah, yeah, I love that. I think that's a very important question that I would be very interested in for sure. So that's interesting. So it's either the degree or the heterogeny of degree or both. And we don't know the answer that uh, produces the superior outcome on the task. I'm inclined to say it might be the heterogeneity just because going back to this idea that the amount of work in the network done at each population size is about the same, the idea that a population of 10 agents and one of 100 agents holding connectivity of constant, they're going to have different degrees, but it seems like they're doing the same amount of work to complete the task. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so that's at least a pretty strong guess that I call it a conservation law, that the total number of trades is going to be approximately conserved to reach a solution. Would that indicate that it's probably heterogeny and not degree? Probably, but you know, you can be fooled, as we know, right? There's no guarantee that correlation equals causation, especially in an N of one type situation. In this case, we could call the universal laws the N of one. You mentioned in passing, and uh, this caused my eyebrow to go up, the experiment of randomly adding connections, you know, again, sort of our naive way of thinking about the world, that probably ought to be a good thing, right? But turned out to have no effect at all, it sounds like, or damn close to it. So in this experiment, for some reason, randomly adding connections didn't do much. And at first I thought it was because we use these, what you call Erdos-Renyi random networks, where the path length, the average path length, so the distance between you and another agent, is actually quite low. It's usually always less than two, meaning that you're within two steps of any other agent in the network, no matter what. So if you start changing connections, you know that doesn't really do much to the overall network structure, right? But then we started looking into it in these other networks called connective caveman networks. And these are pretty cool. So it's like you take these fully connected groups, you sether one within tie within these little networks, and then you connect them to another network that's near you. And so what you get is you get these rings of networks, these cliques that they call them, that are all sort of connected to each other, but have still a lot of individuals within their groups that they're connected to. And even when we started to change the random link alteration there, we didn't get too many effects. That might be due, honestly, to the fact that this is random link alteration. So what they're doing is they're not selecting out someone who's maybe a high performer, which could be something else, where instead of just picking someone at random, you look at a, say, friends of friends effect and see who's doing the best in terms of people you're near. So yeah, who do you respond to? The person with the high Twitter follower count, right? <laughs> As a cynical equivalent. Now, that's interesting. As I think about it, caveman networks are at least approaching my previous concept of membraneonics, right? Because they are essentially connected to each other, only thinly connected elsewhere, which is essentially the idea of membranes and protocols. So that's interesting that you didn't see any real effect even there, where you would think 
that propagation would help, particularly if you had the rule of publishing to your connections. Because if you're in a caveman network, when you publish, everybody's publishing to a small group. Relatively little of it diffuses out widely into the world because of the network structure. If I got the description correctly. While in, let's say, a short path length network, everybody, or not everybody, but most people get it pretty damn quickly, right? And then subsequent reactions, it propagates to everybody pretty quickly. And a small world network, it would be in between, presumably, right? Yeah, no, exactly. If you had a path length of, you know, three, four, five, six, something like that kind of thing you might see in a small world network with a few thousand agents, then you would have a different cascade and none of that made much difference that's interesting yeah that's right honestly i think that there could be like another paper there people exploring different ways to alter this kind of random link alteration to see what's going on one thing i would like to talk about is the connected caveman networks because they did extraordinarily well at this task something that you can do with them is you can alter both the size of the click and the number of clicks so you could hold population size constant say at 24 and you can have either four units with six individuals in the units or six units with four individuals in the units. And so what we did is we kind of played with that back and forth to see holding population size constant, which of these outperform the other. And what we found is that what you really want in these kind of tasks is many small groups rather than a few larger groups. I'm going to guess that they're are limits at both ends of that, right? And if you explored a range, you know, a group of one isn't going to be very useful, you know, duh, right? Especially if you're not connected to anybody else, you're just sitting in the dark, right? So I would imagine that if you did a parameter sweep, you would find some range where more is better and some range where less is better. Did you guys do anything like that? And did you find some sweet spot in your artificial universe? No, that's precisely right. So actually, yeah, as you get too low in terms of numbers in the group, you approach what's called a ring network, where basically everyone is just, you know, it's just a line, basically, where everyone has two partners. And, and at that point, the performance drops off again. It seems that what really helps these connected caveman networks is they're able to both do a little bit of internal exploitation in that whatever information they have, they're sharing with each other, and they're not, you know, venturing too far outside of that, but then also do a little bit of exploration by basically bridging that gap to the other group that's near them. Yep. That's about what I would have expected. And, you know, I would expect, you know, no free lunch theorem that the optimal topology would vary based on the problem. You know, again, another paper might be to find three or four other problems that are sort of vaguely analogous to the potion task problem, you know, and consider just the caveman network and do some parameter sweeps on caveman network designs with respect to size and N, and then see how they do on these different problems. And I'm going to hypothesize that other than by bad luck, probably you're going to find different optimal solutions. 100%. I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of, you know, Ross Ashby's kind of good regulator theorem. Yeah. That essentially, <laughs> you know, the a good regulator of some kind of problem has to have a model of what that problem's doing. So if you think about it, it's like the network structure should in some way converge 
onto the problem that it's presented with. Where it would be nice if it did, though very seldom are there mechanisms to make that occur. You know, think about our institutions, like the problem of scientific research, which you are intimately familiar with. It's in an institution called a university, which is in an institution called a department, which then has labs and then has poor graduate students, serfs, right? And those things don't move around very much. I'm actually on a governance board for a couple of research institutes, including one embedded in a very large STEM university. And it's one of our hair pulling exercises is that making anything change structurally is essentially impossible. So a real world takeaway from this insight you just had is that we are probably grossly suboptimized in our research. Let's just keep it at scientific research by the fact that we have this extraordinarily stereotypical hierarchical institutional structure. And we use the same structure with probably very similar degree structure for biology, physics, chemical engineering, et cetera, when they probably have very different attributes, which is kind of interesting. And of course, we have workarounds. Like in physics, we now see these massive papers with 600 authors and such, where the physicists probably, because they're so arrogant, they think they know the answer to everything. The thing is, they're smart enough that they often do. You know, they have broken out of the boxes more than any of the other disciplines. You know, they were the first to adopt archive, for instance, and publish their work before waiting for the scholarly journals. They're the first to really went nuts on large end collaborations worldwide, fuck the institutional boundaries. And it might just be a takeaway that we should think about that more generally in the world of scientific research. It you know, falls into an area of increasing interest of mine called meta-science. How do we think about the science of science so that we can do science better? You know, As a globe, we're spending something like $400 billion dollars a year on science or closely related to science. And I bet you a cheeseburger and a half that we're probably no better than 20% effective at spending that money in terms of solving the problems that would actually move society and our knowledge of the universe forward. What else did you discover that was interesting? Yeah. So in addition to, you know, some of the findings that as performance increases, inequality does as well, that we find that basically the uh, agents that are driving the inequality tend to be more central in the network. We've done a few other things. So I had another paper with my colleague, Jesse Miltzman, using this same model, where instead of looking just at the connected caveman networks and the random networks, we looked at these core periphery networks. And essentially, the way that these work is that you have one group that is this tightly clustered core. So, you know, their connectivity is quite high. And then you have a periphery, which is quite low in terms of their connectivity, both to each other and to themselves. And what we find there is that those networks tend to do really, really well at this problem. Essentially, what we think is happening there is that the networks are somehow being able to have their lunch and eat it too, almost, or have their cake and eat it too, in the sense that one part of the network is able to just exploit whatever information they get, while the periphery is able to just explore the range of options available to them. Yeah, of course, there's another classic design parameters, exploration versus exploitation. Talk a little bit about how, you know, from the, within the machinery of your world, that might work. So in the case of exploration and exploitation, you might think of exploitation as a case where you're on one of these pathways with these potions and you're just using exactly what you know. 
So the network in that case, it's like, cool, I just found this really vital potion. I'm going to mix it with the ones I already know, keep doing that, keep doing that. And in the meantime, no one's really going back in the pathway and using the older ones in different kinds of combinations. And so you would think about this kind of explorer dynamic as a network having individuals who are not necessarily doing what everyone else is doing. And in our case, we call these loser nodes. Because basically what they are is they're individuals who, while everyone else is increasing in every single performance metric, they seem to be just stable. It looks like they're not doing anything. But if you actually think about the group structure and what's necessary to solve the problem, they tend to be really important because on a second order, what they're doing is they're giving new information to this core to be able to exploit. Yeah, that's interesting. So let's think about that in terms of real-world analogies, since we're part of the fun of this, is to say, all right, what might this mean, right? Losers, right? Our current socioeconomic system is certainly set up to manufacture losers in large quantity. Is that actually a good design for total system efficiency? I think about this specifically in terms of meta-science. So, you know, being able to have people work a little bit on the fringes and not necessarily embedded kind of in the literature on, you know, some kind of specific problem case. Someone who comes to mind is, you know, Freeman Dyson, for example, who for his entire career, he called himself a heretic. That's essentially what he was doing. He was trying to be that guy on the edge. <laughs> yeah, he was a madman. And the amount of great ideas he had from just saying, fuck all, you know, he didn't even have a PhD, right, famously. And he didn't give a fuck what anybody thought. And he was sufficiently charming that he could find people to give him money personally often outside the institutional structure so they couldn't discipline him very much he's a great example i'll give you an example from i attended the annual metascience conference worldwide metascience conference in may and there was an amazing number of great ideas floating around let me run one by you that i think is very much like this and i actually came up with the number based on back of the envelope calculations of what it would cost imagine that there were some governance mechanism, which we will leave to the student to design, because it's too fucking hard for an old fart like me, that allocated 1,000 lifetime endowed chairs per year to 25-year-olds. Mm. <laughs> Could you imagine what that would do to science? Oh, man. And of course, it would be competitive, right? They, would, they wouldn't give them out randomly, but there'd be some governance mechanism that tried to optimally endow 1,025-year-olds each year with no bias towards the domain or the discipline or anything, you know, other than whatever this governance algorithm was. And you would suddenly have a whole bunch of people who had lifetime endowed chairs that could work on any fucking thing they wanted to. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like the dream, right? You know, is you would have people just in full explore mode their entire careers, just, you know, not having to worry about necessarily impressing people. <laughs> yeah, or can you imagine getting out of the grind of trying to get tenure, right? You're in the grind now trying to get your PhD, but let me tell you, young man, that ain't nothing compared to grind of being an assistant professor trying to get tenure, at least at an elite university. I mean, that's a fairly horrible seven years in most people's lives, you know, especially if you're you know, at a very top tier university where the success rate is 30% or 25% or something. Those thousand people at least would have a, a wonderful situation, but a thousand isn't very many out of the total number of PhDs per cohort. That's actually an interesting number. How many science PhDs are there per cohort? Let's see. What other thoughts might come from your head about possible, even wacko extrapolations from what you learned in this experiment? 
Yeah, you know, one thing I've been thinking about lately is specifically what this kind of inequality means. You know, we were talking earlier, is it kind of an inequality of outcomes or, you know, we're talking about wealth here. And again, it kind of all goes back for me to institutional design and essentially, you know, what kind of institutions do we want? We talk a little bit in the paper about this idea of agent negative and agent positive visions of institutional design, where an agent positive one is one essentially where you just expect that you can improve things by finding the right people. An agent negative one is where essentially what you do is you can improve things by improving the structure of the institutions. And I feel like, sure, there has to be a blend between these two things though, right? So this question about you know roles and fits is one that kind of deeply interests me and I think is something that moving forward in terms of setting this up for interdisciplinary research could be a really fruitful avenue. Let's explore on that a little bit. Of course, this is an age-old question. People talk about history this way. Is it the great man theory of history? You know, history has been very different without Napoleon or Hitler or Einstein. And then there's others that say, no, it's actually broad forces. And if it wasn't Napoleon, it been somebody else. And if Einstein hadn't figured out uh, relativity, somebody else would have. Any insights from this experiment that give you any relative weights on individual versus institutional structure? The really good example I think of is uh, Isaac Newton. This guy was obviously a genius, but he himself said, you know, I stand on the shoulder of giants. And that seems to be him saying something about this agent negative perspective. You know, personally, I think the fact that essentially what we get are these genius agents even though the agents themselves are pretty dumb, they don't have necessarily different cognitive strategies or anything like that. But what you get is high performers in the network based on their structure tells us that there is something to this kind of agent negative view about mechanism design and institutions. That seems reasonable. That does seem reasonable, particularly that you discovered that the multiple measures of network centrality seem to be correlated with higher outcomes for the individuals. And that there also that there was designs that resulted in significant inequality that were actually the superior performers, which is also quite interesting. I suppose you could explore that further by having the agents have different cognitive strategies. You know, like you could have people that just always did random, others that use some slightly smarter algorithm, etc. That would be kind of fun. Then you'd be able to actually see where some of these trade-offs are. Of course, unfortunately, we can't come to any crisp answers because we all know what the answer will be. It's both, right? And the uh, free lunch there will tell us not only is it both, but it will depend on the nature of the problem you're trying to solve. Right? So if you want to build an atomic bomb, get the smartest motherfuckers you can find and lock them on the top of a desert mesa with armed guards and electrified fences around them for two and a half years, right? Tried to figure out why the obesity epidemic is happening in the whole world. I have no fucking clue what the structure there is, but whatever we're trying ain't working because nobody's figured it out, despite the fact that it's probably worth $5 trillion a year to do so, something like that. Other speculations or thoughts or extrapolations that your work or related work you've done have, have caused you to ponder? You know, kind of what you're talking about here, you know, how do we know what the problem actually looks like, right? My advisor and I have another paper on this concept of generative entrenchment and how it might play into organizational design. And so generative entrenchment is basically early path dependencies set in an organism. So for example, in order to grow hands, first you have to grow a spine and then you have to grow the arms and you have to grow the wrist and everything else that goes with it. And we started asking, to what extent is this reflected in human organizations? 
Is there a process of generative entrenchment that explains, for example, why the C-suite looks so similar across <laughs> uh, different corporations and things like that? And I'm curious to what extent, you know, holding everything else constant, you know, there's expectations for certain roles, like let's say I'm a CFO or something, I might not go and to this like weird job unless it explicitly tells me what I'm going to be doing. But we're curious to what extent perhaps institutions themselves reflect the problem space that they're in. Can you almost understand the construction of the problem based on what the institution looks like? And this kind of goes back to say, for example, like your research in evolutionary neural networks, right? You can almost look at the way that some of these feed forward networks get designed in terms of the problems that they have to solve. And you get things like emergent modularity to match modular-like tasks. Yep. And just at a more prosaic level, the U.S. Army and the U.S. Marine Corps have quite different. The on-paper structures are very similar, but the actual way their networks work are quite different. The Marine Corps pushes way more authority down in their hierarchy, while the Army is much more command and control. Now, we'll say that our U.S. Army is much less command and control than, let's say, the Russian Army or the Chinese Army. But compared to the Marine Corps, you know, it's the difference between General Motors in 1955 and a bunch of hippies at Haight-Ashbury. Of course, the nature of the problems they have to solve are different. You know, the Army's job is to engage a big approximate peer foe in a years-long grudge fest, right, and grind the other guy down, while the Marines is to take a beach and operate quickly, rapidly in a one-off situation and prevail until the Army can show up. So they have different tasks, and so they ended up producing quite different doctrines. I think it's quite interesting. The nature of the problem then ought to impact the solution space. We thought about this a lot in terms of what we call information architectures. So just like the structure of the internet, the idea that the Chinese internet is not precisely the same as the one that we're using in the United States, where there kind of the goal is the centralization of information and kind of getting people into rapid consensus, right? For many reasons, they were able to respond to COVID much more quickly, for example, than the United States was. But what does that lead to? Potentially, it leads to you you know, stumbling into a suboptimal solution too early. While as in our case, what we get is we get more exploration, but as a consequence, we have things like polarization built into our system. That's a good one. And that's a design trade-off. You know, one of my favorite, in fact, the only philosophy book that I keep in my working office typically is Karl Popper's The Open Society and Its Enemies. And he wrote this in, I think, the late 40s, early 50s, where he was pondering what's going to happen between the democracies and the totalitarians. And he came up with the hopeful and turned out to be right so far hypothesis that all the turbulence and conflict and polarization and disorder and slow ability to make crisp and accurate decisions of an open society will nonetheless persevere against a much brisker, I mean, when Chi says hop, they hop, right? In the US, uh, Biden says hop and 42% of people say, you're an alien, a reptile alien, right? And yet, Popper makes the argument that because the heterodox view is allowed to incubate and that I'm going to mix some horrible metaphors here. The uh, like rock and roll, I would argue, would have died if it wasn't for garage bands, despite the fact that 99.9% of garage bands suck. And so tolerance of the fringes is indispensable, again, to finding the higher maxima. 
she can say hop and everybody hops and they hop on a stool and they're 18 inches off the ground a discordant society like america let's say can you know find its way to discover things like the internet and such and so that's again a trade-off in terms of what you're trying to accomplish she wants everybody to hop the west says ah oh, we don't need everybody to hop it's, i'd rather have lots of people with discordant ideas and they fight with each other and all that shit but at the end of the day we end up finding the big important ideas more rapidly on average something like that yeah totally now just for fun let's revisit this because i know you wrote about it in the little tripart article that we're in why don't you recap and maybe you've thought more about it since i know i've thought more about what i said because i just made some shit up what do you think uh, these things and other things that you know from your work have implications around things like the design of our platforms on the internet yeah, something I really worry about is kind of the centralizing role of recommendation algorithms, that essentially what it's doing is it's preloading the search process for information online. You know, it's good, perhaps, that I can get the news immediately, but I wonder sometimes if the idea that things are getting closer and closer online might actually be horrible for the way that we digest information. I remember I read something about Facebook back in like 2012. Its path length was like five. So the distance from you to the furthest person from you on Facebook was about five friends. You had to go through five people to get to that person. Now it's less than three. Potentially that's because there are super frienders who are serving as you know certain hubs in the network and things like that. But I think regardless, it's really bad that we're all digesting information in the same way. And I wonder at times if that's essentially what polarization is due to. It's that basically we're all exposed to the same set of information you have to compress it. And so the quickest way to compress it is just like, you know, picking one or the other. And so you see, you know, random issues end up becoming polarized. I think about when uh, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. That was like immediately polarizing. Everyone knew about it in the world, but, you know, unnecessarily so. Yeah, that is interesting that our politics, lo- I mean, one of my favorites of what the fuck, how did this ever happen, is how to teach reading is a politically polarized issue. There's two basic approaches. One's the whole word method and the other's phonics. I mean, that's a gross oversimplification. And somehow whole word became or whole language became associated with the democrats and phonics with the republicans now how the fuck could something as obtuse as that end up being politics and i think you're on to something here this actually fits in with another ruttian hypothesis unproven sports fans so don't bet on this one unless you think rudd is a good hypothecator which he probably is which is the fundamental thing driving us crazy is not necessarily misinformation disinformation hate or anything else it's the fact that we're just receiving too many inbound messages each day you know, hunter-gatherers, which is who we really are under our fancy clothes and $25 haircuts, how many things that they had to deal with that were new each day? Not many, right? And so our brains weren't adapted to that. And even in the mass culture days, you know, it was all the same. You've seen one Beverly Hillbillies episode. You've seen them all pretty much. Now, if you open yourself up to the valve of the world, boom, 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 there are people who are receiving 3,000 interrupts per day. And my hypothesis is there's no fucking way you can deal with 3,000. And so a very simple heuristic is AB, right? What bucket do I put it in? Is this team red or is this team blue? And so a very natural adaptive strategy for gross 
interrupt overload is to become exceedingly simplistic and heuristic. If you only had to deal with 10 a day, which by the way, I think is the optimal number. Uh, There's some people who are designing smart agents to wrap ourselves around a semi-permeable membrane so we can still interact with the internet, but at the rate which we choose. And I have hypothesized that at least initially, I would like to set my membrane parameter to 10 inbounds per day from people I don't know. So I am not allowed to read more than 10 news stories, tweets, Facebook posts, or anything per day, and maybe only allowed to make three, right? It's a a way to reduce the cognitive load from inputs that I uh, allegedly, I mean, as you know, I go on social media sabbatical six months of every year, and I'm almost at the end of my current six-month sabbatical. And so I've been sniffing around a little bit, you know, as I do towards late in my sabbatical, see what's going on. And it's just as I predicted, it always is. Same shit, different day. If you were frozen in a vault and then thawed six months later and thrown into Facebook and told nothing else about the world, you might well guess only a couple of days it went by or a week or something because it's the same shit. It's the same tribe, even though the actual details of each atom are the same. So anyway, it's a, a long way to say, yeah, I agree that uh, too much connectivity, but it may just be too many fucking messages, particularly when they're highly mixed. So we're seeing all kinds of messages we don't even know how to think about could easily cause us to collapse into a very simplistic, you know, tribalism in the world. Yeah, totally. I think about this in terms of what I call the parochial pyramid. It goes back to this idea that Nassim Taleb used to talk about where he's like, oh, you know, among my family, I'm basically a communist. In my neighborhood, I'm a socialist. And then, you know, as it scales up, basically he cares less and less about the situation. And I think about this that sometimes it seems like that pyramid has been upturned where we seem to weigh the most these kind of global issues way more than the local ones. So it's like, you know, perhaps tribalism was always there, but what it was directed at was it was directed at your city council, it was directed at your union meeting. And so it didn't bubble up, you know, into this kind of huge national issue where now, you know, everyone's having to go on one side or the other in order to squeeze through. Yep. I think that's absolutely interesting and true. Now I think about it that Tribalism makes sense when you're at the Dunbar number, right? 150 people trying to figure out how to govern ourselves and avoid starving to death by turning the wrong way down a canyon while we're following the antelope herd. Tribalism at the, let's say, at the size of the United States, that's kind of nuts, right? In fact, our Game B work, that's one of my other projects working on, so radical social change, we believe that society should be reinvented from the Dunbar number up and that That is one of our membranes. We have a whole theory of membranics of all different sorts that interpenetrate each other. But the real payoff membrane is the one of about 150 that we are evolved for. And also, by the way, it has the great side effect that we have proven for 200,000 years that you can manage a group of 150 without any fucking computers, right? You know, people always say, well, how would your Dunbar community, what kind of software would you use to run it? And I go, hopefully none, right? You know, we might have computers running our solar farm or our hydroponics or something, but in terms of how we govern ourselves, why do we need any stinking computers, right? We've proven that humans can manage at that level without any stinking computers. And, you know, that may be a way to, to think about this. And also it would ground people if they're actually personally involved in the governance of their life at the Dunbar number. They're going to have way less concern that 
somebody is, is or is not wearing a burqa in fucking Iran. Why do I give three fucks what somebody does in Iran? And in reality, I couldn't care less. You know, mining other people's business about things that are so far away, have no impact on me whatsoever, you know, strikes me as nuts. On the other hand, there are a few things that does have a big impact on me, well, all of us, which are the collective action problems that do occur at the global level. Of course, classically, it's using the atmosphere as a dump for greenhouse gases. Anyone that does that anywhere in the world is impacting me. And so part of the art and science of this hierarchy of membranes is you still do have to have an outer global membrane, but it only has a very short writ. Just things that actually have global implications, like you know, climate change being the most obvious one. I would say the stupid situation of war is another one. You know, the fact that war still exists really shows us how stupid humans are. Talk about a zero negative sum, gross negative sum, at least since 1870, when the technology got good enough. It used to be you could win war. You could go steal enough shit to more than pay for it. But since 1870, war gotten so expensive and so destructive, it's a a priori idiotic thing for humans to engage in, and yet we still do, but there's a multipolar trap problem that if I'm prepared to go to war, you need to be prepared to go to war so that I don't go to war against you and steal all your women and shit. And in reality, it costs me more to steal your women and shit than they're worth, but nonetheless, if I make that bad action, you're forced to respond to defend. And so it is a global level problem to break the multipolar trap of war between nation states. So there's another example of something that needs to be in that top level bubble, but most things don't, you know, I would say even things, you know, that we think of as these crazy polarizing issues like abortion, you know, your community 150 ought to say whether abortion's allowed or not, right? At the level of 150, the nearest one is probably a hundred yards away. So you don't like to rule here, move to the next one, right? Truthfully, if we decide abortions are bad over here, why should you give three fucks, right? None of your business. We've chosen this rule. I use this example sometimes just to be as hyperbolic as possible. Okay. Two communities side by side. One that forbids abortion for any reason whatsoever, and then one that makes it mandatory. No births are allowed, right? And I would suggest that if you want to take embryonic seriously, both of those ought to be allowed, right? If the people in them have through their governance process have said, this is our role. You want to be a member of this membrane? That's the role. You may think it's idiotic, but that's our role. And if you don't like it, fucking leave. And I think there is a way, and then it's no longer anybody's fucking business what people choose to do in their membrane. You know, the other one is, okay, I can imagine a, you know, 150, a Dunbar group in which rigid traditional matrimony is the only way that you are allowed to have sex, right? And then the one next door, free love, dude, whatever. Both are perfectly legit. I will bet on which one will be more successful, but time will sort that out. And it's really, as long as there's voice and exit, as long as people can easily leave and they have some input into the governance model and they can easily leave, why not let 8 billion divided by uh, 150, what's that come out to? Something like 55 million membranes. And let them each have an awful lot of setting their parameters locally. And then this gets away from this problem you're talking about that, oh yeah, something happened in Iran. I need to have a team A, team B reaction to it. What the fuck? Why are you even thinking about that? Yeah, that's fascinating. And I like kind of this invocation of Dunbar. It's almost as if this compression problem of dealing with so much information, we've started to treat 
national politics as a Dunbar process when it's not a Dunbar process. And it seems like what you're trying to get at with game B is to actually make these issues into, I guess you could call them Dunbar solvable processes. I wonder, you know, how much this dovetails, especially like with the work of like Eleanor Ostrom on uh, polycentricity and kind of, you know, overlapping jurisdictions of different ideas and allowing people to kind of opt in, opt out of these things. Yeah. In fact, that's uh, in our game B structure, at least as it's evolving, we have exactly that. So for instance, a number of the local Dunbars could be members of a watershed Dunbar, you know, not Dunbar, but a, a container which holds the river as a commons, which we all agree to. And Eleanor Ostrom's, you know, governance modality for for commons, I would say are not perfect, but they're damn good, a damn good place to start. And so they negotiate amongst all the Dunbars to a accord, as we're starting to call this, within this membrane. And all these members here agree to agree to this outer accord about this one thing, about how we're going to treat the river, right? We are not going to dump shit in the river, right? And we're not going to catch more than X amount of fish in the river. And we're not going to allow silt to go into the river and four or five other things. But that's the only thing the accord's about. We don't have to agree about gun control or abortion or whether we should cover our heads when we go into church or not. It's totally irrelevant at the level of the watershed, while the things that impact the watershed are of the essence of the watershed, so that each membrane has a commons within it, and it has an accord for the governance of its commons. Yeah, kind of going back, you know, to this kind of structure of the model of like the connected caveman, and also kind of some of the things you're talking about, Popper and hypocrisy. It seems like what we're trying to do in each of these places is introduce basically a better selection mechanism into the governance structure so that things aren't necessarily so sticky, so that they're better adapted to local problems. And it's, so it's almost as if what democracy was, was it provided a means for selection, but perhaps as it's you know sitting right now as a legislative democracy is imperfect. There could be a better design out there to in fact, if you look at the uh, repute in which Congress is held, which is like 9% of people has a positive view on Congress, it scores lower than cable TV operators, if you can imagine, right? Uh, that's something, whoa, Comcast. Well, American people think Comcast is better than Congress. So that would seem to me uh, to imply that there is much room for institutional improvement. Alrighty, this has been a very interesting conversation. I would certainly encourage you all to read Cody's paper if you are interested. And as always, you can get it at the jimrutshow.com on the episode page. So thank you very much, Cody, for a right interesting conversation. Thanks again for having me. It was great. We'll have you back sometime. Yeah, perfect. Thank you, Jim. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.